So as I've been saying, we are in the season of Easter right now. This is the resurrection season that we are in, and it is a long season. Uh, it's about six or seven weeks or so, uh, and this is a season in which we are, our, our fasting from Lent is now being transformed into feasting. This is a season in which Jesus turns our wilderness wanderings into table fellowship. And I've been encouraging us to take this feast with intentionality, this resurrection season. With just as much planning and purposefulness that you, that you fasted, maybe there was something that you gave up, or maybe there was a certain activity that you took on, I want you to take that same intentionality into this feasting season. What is a way that you can celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ in your home, in your families, uh, in your neighborhoods this Easter season? And last week, we saw what this means for individuals. Uh, We looked at at another passage in which Jesus appeared to the disciples there, and we saw in which Jesus transforms our fear into joy. And then in the story of Thomas, we see that Jesus transforms our absence into intimacy. Now, this morning's passage is a bit similar. In fact, you might be tempted to think that it's just more of the same stuff, right? Because Jesus shows up, and Jesus does amazing Jesus things, as as he typically does. But don't be fooled. There is a substantial difference. There's a a substantial change in tone that is happening in today's story. This isn't so much a story of Jesus establishing the fact of the resurrection, although that's certainly a part of it. No, but there's something much bigger that's going on here right now. So in our readings, did you pay attention during our prophet Ezekiel? Did you hear what Ezekiel had to say to us this morning? He was prophesying about this divine water that was coming, flowing through the land. A water where fishermen stood at its boundaries, gathering up fish of many kinds, where there were trees that bared beautiful fruit that fed the nations, and that there were leaves of healing. And did you hear the reading from Revelation this morning as well? The description of that heavenly throne room in which our understanding, the way in which we perceive God is now different. Who is the one who sits upon the throne? It is the lamb who is slain. He alone is worthy of all praise for he alone rescued a people from every nation. You see in John's gospel on that morning, that morning light began to shine into the eyes of the disciples. As that was happening, the disciples witnessed the longing of the prophets and the throne room of heaven coming and merging in the person of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. He is that great fisherman who is drawing up beautiful, amazing fish. And he does so because he is the lamb who has conquered death itself. You see, friends, the resurrection of the crucified Messiah has substantial, life-changing significance, not just for the disciples, but for heaven and earth. This resurrection feast is big. So I want to talk about this passage in in two sections today. And you can probably pick these sections out. The first is Jesus making breakfast for the disciples. We're going to look at that. And then we're going to look at Jesus' conversation with the Apostle Peter. And I think that God has something to say to us about feasting from these sections. So at, at our story from John, it's such a beautiful story, right? Like if I could just pick one story in all the Gospels where I could be present for... Like, it's such a beautiful example of of the kindness, of the gentleness of Jesus Christ. It's so gorgeous. So first we have the disciples, and they're they're deciding all night, or they're they're fishing all night long to no avail. 
And that is just completely exhausting for them, right? They're disheartened. They don't catch anything. And keep in mind, these are expert fishermen. They know exactly how to catch fish. They've been doing this all of their lives, for generations, in fact. Now, for those of us who've lived a few years, you might know what it's like to apply your expert skills at something, at a craft that you've mastered, only to start drawing up empty nets. We've all been there for, well, at least those of us who uh, have less hair and stuff like that. We've, we've experienced this before. Well, it's in this moment of dark emptiness that, the, that Jesus Christ appears, and he appears with light and with abundance. The sun rises. Jesus calls out to them, and he tells them to cast out on the other side of the boat. And, I mean, you know. You know the story, right? You know the, how this happens. The nets are full of fish, but the nets don't yet break. And John cries out. He goes, it's the Lord. And Peter, filled with pure elation and, and not much of a filter, he jumps immediately overboard and swims to go meet his friend Jesus. And there on the beach, they feast with Jesus Christ. And I love that line. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? Because they knew. They knew it was the Lord. Eating with the crucified Messiah was filling them with wonder. Now, this isn't the only time that Jesus Christ miraculously had provided for the disciples. Perhaps this story reminds you of some other moments in Scripture in which this happens. So, for example, that one time when they ran out of food, right? And then some people bring together some fish and some loaves of bread, and Jesus then multiplies that to feed thousands of people. And then maybe you even picked up on some of the words from this passage that Jesus uses. The passage says that Jesus took bread and he gave it to his disciples reminding us of that Last Supper moment. What the gospel writer is doing here, what John is doing here, is he's telling us, pay attention. This is a Eucharistic moment that's happening here. This is a moment in which God's people are being fed by God himself. And that's my first point. The resurrection feast is with God himself. Jesus, in his grace, meets us in this moment. Now, I can't rewind the clock and be there on that beach I wish I could, but in a sense, we do. We do this. We do this every single Sunday, right? Just this last week, Molly, uh, she was kind of teasing me because in my, in my communion instructions, I've, there's a phrase that I've been saying that I really love, and it's, you know, I'm so excited to celebrate this spiritual feast with you. She was kind of teasing me. She's like, couldn't you change it up a little bit every now and then? <laughs> and I say that because I love it. Like we are, we're celebrating this spiritual feast. Don't be fooled by the fact that it's just a, a small piece of bread and a small sip of wine. We are feasting upon Christ. Each week we feast with Jesus in the same reality of those disciples on the beach that morning. Jesus is here. And he's not just here at the table, although yes, he's here, but he's here as we get fed by him. I love what Martin Luther says about communion when he says that the, the bread and the wine, when they're offered up to God in this moment, Christ is present there and he uses every single preposition in the book to describe the presence of Christ. That Christ is in, above, around, within the bread and the wine. And not just that, but spiritual work is being done here in this moment. C.S. Lewis describes the communion as this moment in which his heavenly hand reaches out and it touches us in our heart. And that doesn't mean necessarily that every time you come up for communion, you feel something, although that might happen. Sometimes it does happen. Sometimes some of you come up for communion with tears in your eyes because the Lord is doing work in you. But sometimes that doesn't happen. But still, that means, or certainly come up and expect that you will be fed by Jesus Christ himself. 
So friends, this is a resurrection feast that we are in, a feast in which we feast with God himself. Now, some of you here, you might feel like you're not necessarily welcome to this feast. It might seem like you're an outsider watching other people do spiritual Jesus things or whatever. Well, I've got good news for you because I'm pretty sure that Peter himself this morning, he probably didn't feel welcome himself. You know, despite the fact that he enthusiastically jumped overboard and swam, internally there's still some conflict that's within him. There's still some things that he needs to work through himself. And Jesus knows this and Peter knows this. And so even though there's a breakfast, there's a meal that's going on, Peter knows there's a conversation that needs to happen. He's caught within this tension of of the excitement of of knowing that Jesus is here, but then that tension of, of knowing that there's something to talk about. Well, sure enough, Jesus calls Peter over to him for conversation. Now, if you recall the story of the crucifixion, you know that at that point, Peter had hit an all-time low. While Jesus was being interrogated by the high priest, Peter and John were able to, to get into the courtyard. They were able to get a little bit closer to where that trial was happening. And it was here that Peter was warming himself by a fire. And multiple times, someone asks him, aren't, aren't you with Jesus? Aren't you one of them? Three times this happens. And three times, Peter says, no, no, no. Now, we can only guess why Peter did that. Maybe he resented Jesus for what had happened. I don't know. Maybe he felt guilty for not being able to stop the whole thing from going down. Maybe he was being, he was afraid of being pulled into the trial and maybe put to death himself. That certainly was a a reality, a potential reality. But a third time when Peter is asked, he absolutely loses it. Peter starts cussing up and down, the text tells us. And then it tells us that Peter even invoked a curse upon himself. Now, don't take that lightly. This is a culture that understands thoroughly what it means to be blessed or to be cursed. This is a big moment. This is a big deal for for Peter to actually be calling down curses from God Almighty upon himself based off of not knowing Jesus Christ. It's hard for us to overstate the reality of that sin in that moment. And for whatever reason, Peter arguably the disciple closest to the Lord Jesus, at one point declares that if he himself was actually lying, if he himself actually was a friend of Jesus, that God should damn him. That is massive. But friends, this feast, the second second point that I have is good news. Because praise the Lord, the resurrection feast is for restored sinners. Those denials... Jesus isn't intimidated by those denials. Just as Peter denied Jesus three times, Jesus now gives the opportunity to Peter to restore him three times. Three times he asks him, Peter, do you love me? Yes, I love you, Lord, Peter responds. Well, then feed my lambs. And then Jesus asks again. And then Jesus asks again. The third time it hurts Peter It grieves him that that Jesus keeps sort of twisting the knife, sort of pushing into this. Sometimes that's how it is when Jesus gets close to us. And Peter exclaims, Lord, Lord, you know everything. You know the grief that I've carried. You know the self-hatred that I've wrestled with. You know the anger at myself, the anger at the disciples, the anger even at you. You know everything, Lord. But you know that I truly, truly love you. So Jesus says again, then feed my sheep. You see, Peter is moving from a place of guilt and anger 
now to a place of love and of loyalty. The resurrection feast is a place where God restores sinners like you and like me. So several years ago, a couple years ago now, Molly and I, we, we, uh, with, with the advice of Christian and Molly, had been strongly considering church planting. And we were thinking about a name for the church. This is a difficult thing to think about, right? Like, what would you name a church? And we were thinking about maybe some saints' names. We were thinking about some biblical themes. We were thinking about, uh, you know, some ambiguous words used by culture that could maybe be used in a, in a Christian sort of way. And at one point, we're doing dishes and stuff, and, and Molly was like, what about, what about the word restoration? And you know when someone says a good idea and then nobody says anything, it just gets kind of quiet? Like, that's exactly what happened in that moment. We didn't hear, like, the voices of angels. We didn't hear the voice of God or anything. There, instead, it was just this, like, sacred silence of, like, ooh, yeah, that sounds good. And I think we knew right at that moment that this church would be called Restoration. It was a beautiful, beautiful moment. And if you look at our website, if you look at our literature, you know that restoration is a full word. There's so much meaning in that word, right? It's, it's, it's what happens when there's something that has, has once had its glory days. It's, it's once had lots of splendor to it. And it was made to carry out a certain purpose. Maybe it's a car or a house or a bike or something like this. But for whatever reason, this thing fell into disrepair. It was discarded. It was silenced. It was forgotten. And you see, when something is restored, it's not totally leveled. It's not like it's just cleared out and destroyed so that something new can be built. No, when something is restored, it's a much more difficult work. It's when the, the original purpose gets brought back and new life is brought back into it, is breathed into it. And that new splendor is even more radiant than what it ever was before. So this neighborhood that we're in, this is a neighborhood that was built back in the 40s. And there's a lot of cute homes here. I, I hope we, we have a, one of those little cute homes, you know. But when you drive around, sometimes you'll see these new construction homes, which if you have a new construction home, that's fine. This is not a, a judgment upon you. Do not read my illustration <laughs> against you in that sense. But usually when you see a new construction home, that's a moment in which the, the buyer or, or the developer of, of that space does an assessment and realizes it is not worth it. It is not worth it to, to fix this old house. And so we need to just totally clear it out. We need to bulldoze this and start from scratch. Now that makes a lot of business sense in a lot of ways and, and those homes have a lot of modern uh, conveniences to them that is good. But that is not how our Lord Jesus works. That's not how God the Father works. No, he does this slow, difficult work of restoration. And this passage is one of the best examples of it. I love that like almost every commentator on this passage uses the word restoration somewhere uh, in it. Scholars love to use that word when they're talking about this passage. And this passage is dear to us too because it's a restoration text. I don't know if you were here two years ago as, as we had that service on the beach. Some of you were. But this was the passage that we preached from. This is a restoration passage. And it's what our lectionary has for us today. I didn't pick it for today. Because here, this is when Jesus moves through the silenced, the broken, and even the cursed heart of Peter. And he restores it brick by brick, slowly and slowly and graciously. Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. 
Some of us know exactly what it's like to be Peter. Some of us have been ridden by guilt, guilt from letting ourselves down. Maybe you've been chained to the dreams of your youth or the dreams of your parents or the dreams of your spouse or the dreams of your children, and you have this guilt that, that looms over you because you haven't been living up to those dreams, and it's crushing you. Or maybe someone you trusted has, has let you down. Maybe someone has wounded you significantly, and that wound has marked you. It's shaped you. You now walk with a limp because of that wound. And because of these things, you have viewed yourself as someone who's been cursed. Maybe you've even called that curse down upon yourself. Jesus, if this is who you've made me to be, then fine, so be it. May I be one of the damned. Maybe you've declared yourself unusable. And it doesn't matter if this is your first time here this morning, or if you were there at that beach service two years ago, because friends, you are in good company here in this room. In fact, just this week, I had lunch with someone who had tears in his eyes, and he looked at me and says, I think I understand why God is bringing me to a church called Restoration. Because friends, this is a room full of people who've, been, who've said that to each other, to me, to one another. This is a room full of people who knows what it means to be feasting with God and who are discovering more and more the depths of that reality. Friends, this isn't just a party on the beach. No, this isn't just a feast on the beach. The resurrection feast, this is the Christian life. This is where restoration happens. This is where feasting happens on a daily basis, not even just during the, re- the Easter season. So friends, I want to call us to turn our fasting into feasting. We are a feasting people, not just with one another, but with God himself. He feasts with us with his own presence. And this is a place where broken people like you and like me are restored back to him. So let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you for the cross and we thank you for the resurrection. Lord, through your son, you are reconciling all things back to yourself. Restore us, O Lord. In the places where you have fallen into rot and despair and guilt and shame, restore us. In the places where we've cursed ourselves and given up, Lord Jesus, restore us. And do this so that we may proclaim the power of your resurrection to one another and to those around us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.